Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Rich and poor countries clash over climate change. The U.S. withholds some cash meant to help developing nations cope with warming. To say that you're going to cut off assistance to countries who are suffering the impacts of climate change largely due to emissions from the United States and other industrialized countries over the last hundred years, I think risks looking pretty heavy-handed. Also, Mossville, Louisiana. Residents there describe a paradise lost to the petrochemical industry. What happened to that place where I was reared at? that I can go back and show my children, you know, this is where my ancestors are. But now part of it is gone and the rest that's left there is just a little ghost town and people starving for life. Now little Mossville fights back. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. It's a tripartisan try for action on climate change. Massachusetts Democrat John Kerry, South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham, and Connecticut Independent Joe Lieberman have a compromise bill they hope can win in the U.S. Senate. The House of Representatives narrowly approved sweeping climate and energy legislation last year, but winning over the Senate is far harder. The Kerry-Graham-Lieberman bill would cap carbon emissions from power plants and encourage cleaner alternatives for transportation. It also supports offshore drilling, nuclear power, and coal. Alden Meyer says the bill is a curious combination designed to cobble together 60 Senate votes. Mr. Meyer directs policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. He says the senators are walking a tightrope over tough political terrain. Clearly what they're aiming for here is a sweet spot, providing enough incentives for those industries to attract uh, some members that normally wouldn't vote for a climate bill, particularly some of the additional Republicans, uh, without alienating uh, progressive Democratic senators and, and scaring them away from the bill. So... The bill will parallel the House passed bill in terms of calling for a 17% reduction in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2020. It will put a mandatory cap on emissions of uh, the majority of the economy over time. There will be allowances that polluters have to purchase. And, of course, an open question is uh, what happens uh, if the Senate does take action on this basis? What happens in a conference with the House before the bill goes to the president for a signature? Now, conventional wisdom is that in an election year, the actual season for legislation is shortened. What do you think? Is this doable in an election year to, uh, to pass something as difficult as a, as a climate and energy bill? Well, I think it's definitely doable. Obviously, the health care bill was also very difficult covering a major sector of the economy, and they got that through. There's growing support for action on this because many of the industries, uh, particularly the electric utilities, would like to have more certainty about what the future regulatory structure is going to be as they look to make multi-billion dollar investments in new power generating capacity. So there's an increasing number of businesses that are weighing in here. Uh, there's national security arguments for acting on this because of oil imports. Uh, and I think everyone agrees agrees that the time is, is now to do this on the Senate floor if Senators Kerry, Graham, and Lieberman can attract the necessary support to overcome a likely filibuster. If this doesn't work, if the Senate uh, can't pass a climate bill, 
What happens to the international effort to control climate change? Well, there's two issues there. One would be, would the administration follow through on the commitment we made in Copenhagen and say that even without legislation, we would try to meet that 17% reduction goal in other ways, such as through EPA exercising its authority? The even harder issue would be, would we be able to keep our commitment to provide our share of the $100 billion by 2020 that industrialized countries put on the table in Copenhagen for developing country adaptation, clean technology, and and reducing deforestation activities. So if Congress doesn't act and doesn't set some price on carbon, then we probably don't have a ready pot of money to dip into to pay these developing countries the money we, we've promised them. Is that right? Without Senate legislation, without without a bill in Congress that provided uh, some dedicated long-term funding for those purposes, it might be very difficult for the administration to keep that part of the bargain. Uh, and then I think you might see the whole house of cards fall apart. Do I understand correctly that uh, the United States has threatened to withhold international aid to countries that we have determined aren't playing ball when it comes to the way we want to do climate change in the international arena? Is that right? That has been the public stance of of the U.S., that if you don't uh, support the Copenhagen Accord, which was the political agreement that was negotiated by President Obama and other world leaders in Copenhagen those last few days last December, Uh, we don't intend to provide funding support to you in the future. What do you think of that approach? Well, I think it risks being counterproductive. I mean, uh, to say that you're going to cut off uh, assistance to countries who are suffering the impacts of climate change largely due to emissions from the United States and other industrialized countries over the last hundred years, I think risks looking pretty heavy-handed and actually creating a backlash that that won't meet the goal of, of trying to get more countries to associate themselves with the accord. Give me the the big picture here. Um, Are we anywhere close to the kind of action that uh, seems necessary based on uh, what we know from the science about the, the, the threat of climate change? Well, the answer to that is pretty clearly no. If you look at all the pledges that have been put on the table before, during, and and since Copenhagen by the major emitting countries, not just the U.S., but major developing countries as well, such as China, Brazil, India, South Africa, others, collectively, most of the estimates are that those pledges put us on track to limit temperature increases over pre-industrial levels to somewhere between 3.5 and 4 degrees Celsius. The goal that President Obama and other world leaders uh, took on in Copenhagen was to try to limit that temperature increase to less than 2 degrees. It's better than business as usual, which probably would have put us on a path to 5 degrees or over, but it's not ambitious enough to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Alden Meyer with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be with you. The 40th anniversary of Earth Day put the spotlight back on efforts to tackle big environmental problems. Many of today's challenges are more widespread than those we faced 40 years ago. But budgets are tight as well. So here's a possible solution for one pernicious problem that could end up making money. That might sound like rain, but it's actually fish. Hundreds of invasive Asian carp launching themselves through the air along the Mississippi River. The leaping fish have injured boaters, but that's the least of the problem. The carp can weigh up to 100 pounds. They crowd out native species, and they're spreading north, threatening the Great Lakes. 
Now an Illinois company, Big River Fish Corporation, has an idea to scale back the problem, send them back where they came from. The company just shipped its first load of 40,000 pounds of Asian carp to China. Big River Fish Marketing Director Ross Hirano starts at the beginning of this fish tale. When Asian carp first came to the Midwest uh, back in the 70s, uh, these fish originally were imported for the catfish farms down in the Louisiana, Mississippi River, Delta area. And in the 70s, there was a flood, and these fish were able to escape into the Mississippi River Basin. It's taken this long for these fish to come up north. So we brought them to the U.S. on purpose. Yes, they were brought in on purpose. They are basically uh, were used to clean up the ponds. They eat algae. They're basically bottom feeders, so they're able to help keep the large fish farm ponds clean. Now, why is the Asian carp such a problem? We have uh, lots of uh, animals that get introduced. Why is this one a problem? Well, the problem you have is that they grow 10% a year in terms of their mass. So that six years ago, when I first looked into this problem, there were 55 million pounds of Asian carp in the Illinois River Basin. Now there's about 100 million pounds because there's been no natural enemies for these fish, no uh, method of harvesting them, and there has been no uh, at least domestic uh, market for these fish. And uh, I guess that's uh, what you with the Big River Fish Corporation are trying to solve. You, you want to create that market, right? Absolutely. Uh, Asian carp is viewed as a delicacy in Asia. The bones uh, don't create a problem because we're used to eating with chopsticks, and we spit the bones out. It's just sort of a educated mouth and tongue on how to eat these fish. And they're very tasty, uh, so that there is a tremendous demand for this fish in Asia. How much of the appeal of the fish that you are exporting to China has to do with the fact that China's rivers are, are so very polluted that presumably people would not want to eat fish from them? That's part of the marketing strategy is that we're marketing it as a natural fish grown wild in the Mississippi River and the Illinois River that jumps out. It has so much energy, so when you eat it, you'll get some of that energy also. Tell me about the the, the fish, because we have such a, uh, I guess, cultural bias against eating uh, carp here in, the, here in the States. Not many people eat carp here. A lot, not many people eat a lot of the bottom feeders because it's viewed as fish that's for the lower class, for the poor, and there's a cultural stigma against eating these fish. One of the problems we have with these fish, once again, is there's a lot of bones. They have these Y bones, which float on the side. There's 64 of them. So even though you cut a fillet out, you'll end up with these small bones in it. But in Asia, once again, this is not a problem. Well, this is a, a, a very different way of going about this problem because I guess traditionally what uh, the authorities have been doing is trying to poison the Asian carp, trying to build these uh, sort of electronic underwater barriers to prevent them from getting into the lakes. All of these things cost a lot of money. You're kind of turning the problem on its head and saying, hey, instead of spending money on this, we might make money off this. We believe that this fish can be an economic engine for that entire region in Illinois. Big River Fish is located in Pearl, Illinois, which is in Pike County. We'll be able to create about 170 jobs in that area. So you're you're shipping 40,000 pounds to China, but you're looking at millions of pounds of this fish in, in the rivers. Can an operation like this make a dent in the, uh, the problem of the Asian carp? Absolutely. Um, if we pull out 30 million pounds a year, and that's our goal, we'll have the carp situation under control in five years. Ross Serrano telling us about ideas for taking a bite out of the Asian carp problem. Thank you very much. Quite welcome. In our show for the 40th Earth Day last week, we asked you listeners whether you thought we should still remember and celebrate it. 
Well, you weighed in and didn't want to pension Earth Day off just yet. I definitely think Earth Day still has a purpose in fighting environmental issues. Well, I think that Earth Day is still relevant after all these years. Uh, It has an increasingly important role as the consequences of global warming mount. Earth Day keeps these issues in the forefront where they belong, serves as a rallying point, provides unlimited teaching moments, and gives everyone avenues for contribution, participation, and action. I want to thank you for presenting such a wonderful program. It has reinvigorated my stance on Earth Day. Probably, maybe we'll do something a little bit special on Earth Day. Forty years later, after the U.S. failed to sign Kyoto, after a less than satisfactory Copenhagen conference, there is still a need for Earth Day, especially for young people. The Earth is our mother, and when she hurts, we all will hurt worse. If young people don't grab this raging bull by the horns, they may not have an Earth Day worth breathing 40 years from now. Since we only have one plan to work with, having an Earth Day is is the right thing to do. The views of Nelda Sander of Stillwater, Oklahoma, Pamela Jennings from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Gerald Albanese from Kingston, Arkansas, Randy Biggers of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Pete Sipp from Asheville, North Carolina. Thanks to all of you who called or wrote. Coming up, we travel to the rainforest of Borneo, where indigenous communities wonder what UN plans to preserve forests mean for them. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. The international community seems far from agreeing on a tough plan to prevent runaway climate change. But one potential solution has found broad support. It's RED. Not the color, but a U.N. acronym for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation. It's a plan to save forests, fight climate change, and help the poor all at the same time. Rich polluting countries like red because protecting forest carbon in the tropics could buy time for the reduction of industrial emissions. Developing countries like the billions of dollars red could bring them. But the world's rainforests aren't just home to a lot of carbon. They're also home to a lot of people, and recently the site of more than 100 red pilot projects. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj visited one project in Indonesian Borneo. In theory, red sounds simple. Paid to protect forests, reduce the CO2 emissions that come with their destruction. In practice, red sounds like this. Dozens are crowding into a wooden house to discuss red in Jelomuk, a village between a big river and a big forest in the heart of Borneo. Most of the people here are Dayak Cantu, a tribe whose roots in the Indonesian archipelago go back more than 3,000 years. Today, Jelamuk villagers have guests, a handful of conservationists, an Australian investment banker, an American expert on carbon credits. The house belongs to one of Jelamuk's traditional leaders, but it's his grown daughter, Ida, who speaks up first. Everyone here is wondering, who are these white people? We've seen you passing through our forest taking leaves and logs, but we have no idea what you're doing. So what is this carbon anyway? Do you want to take the carbon from our forest or maybe even gold? 
Actually, far from wanting to take the villagers' carbon, the foreigners very much want it to stay right where it is, in the trees and in the peat soil, and not in the atmosphere, where it would help heat up the planet. Degraded forests are the source of almost a fifth of global greenhouse gas emissions, and protecting them in places like Indonesia is considered one of the quickest ways to slow climate change. Zoe Harkin, a forest carbon specialist for the conservation group Fauna and Flora International, or FFI, offers this explanation. If you protect the forests in Indonesia, it makes it less hot in Australia. So we want to protect, help protect forests here so it's not so hot in Australia. While red, or reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, is still just a four-page document that international negotiators discuss around the world, scenes like these are taking place in tropical forests from Brazil to the Congo. More than two dozen red pilot projects are in the works in Indonesia, each one an experiment in a brand new way of managing forests. FFI's Zoe Harkin. It is extremely exciting. I mean, I used to work in government and what I would give for a lovely little template that would tell me exactly what I need to do because you're constantly feeling your way around just trying to do the best that you can but there's not many or any examples to follow as yet. So that is a challenge. One of the biggest red challenges is how to include forest communities into plans to protect forest carbon. Up to a third of Indonesians are estimated to live in and around forests. The forest FFI wants to protect has 19 villages surrounding it, and FFI wants them all on board its proposed red project. It really just is early days of trying to introduce the concept of red. So if you're going from a situation where they're asking, why do you want our carbon, to giving full permission with full knowledge to undertake the project. It is just a, a very long process. And I think they're very wary of a bunch of white guys coming in and promising all sorts of things because throughout history, any time that's happened in the past, it's always resulted in a negative outcome for them. Between 1985 and 2004, $14 billion, private and public, poured into Indonesia's forests. And while the large-scale planting of oil palm and pulpwood trees has helped Indonesian companies become industry leaders, the poverty rate for rural Indonesian communities has remained much the same. In Jelamuk, villagers like Ida want a different outcome. Ida takes her two-year-old daughter by the hand and agrees to show me around Jelamuk. She's short, wears a bright blue t-shirt, and smiles and laughs a lot. (laughs) Before heading out into the hot sun, she grabs a large shady hat typical of rice farmers in Southeast Asia. It's called tangoi, and she says all the women here know how to make it. She brings me to a tree thick with long thorny pandanus leaves. This is the living tree of the hat. We call it purupo. First you remove the stickers, then you cut it, and it depends. If you want to make a hat, you cut it this size. And if you want to make a mat to sleep on, you need to cut it smaller. Like this. And we don't cut it with a knife. We cut it with a fishing line. Without these hats, we couldn't farm. Working in the sun all day is hard work. We cut down the trees and pull up weeds and burn them so we can plant rice. We have to change plots every year because we can't afford fertilizer. 
It's hard work. People in Jelamuk know what they want. A trained doctor in the village, paved roads, and a better future for their children. And they also know what they don't want. Oil palm plantations, the source of a cheap and versatile oil found in everything from oyster crackers to biofuel blends. Villagers say oil palm companies have taken their neighbors' land for plantations. Conservation groups like FFI say the industry is responsible for almost half of Indonesia's deforestation. And FFI wants to use its red pilot project to keep oil palms out of Jelamuk's forest. But while many hope red will empower poor forest communities, some fear it'll just create another incentive to lay claim to their land, excluding people like Antonius, a traditional leader in Jelamuk, from the one thing he says villagers must have, involvement. We just want to make one thing clear. If FFI wants to make its project happen here, we don't want to just watch, we want to take part in it. That means asking for permission before doing things to the forest and asking our opinion about what to do in the forest. Because oil palm plantation in this area are destroying the land, but the people who live off the land have no input into the decisions made. So we want to help make decisions. If not, we will refuse FFI just as we will refuse oil palm. But it's not really up to people like Antonius and Ida to decide what happens with their land. In Indonesia, traditional land claims come after national interest, which can be defined as creating jobs or boosting palm oil exports, or a more recent goal, using red to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 26% by 2020. But because global leaders failed to pass a legally binding climate change treaty in Copenhagen, red and its preliminary support for local land rights aren't a reality yet. That leaves the nascent forest carbon market to regulate itself. And in places where the only known paths to development are illegal logging, palm oil harvesting, and coal mining, red is appealing. Ida says she likes the basic concept, earning money not to destroy the forest. But I am still confused about the idea of carbon trading. I mean, how would it be possible to make it cooler where they live by buying carbon here? The answer involves something Indonesia has a lot of peat forests. Gustian Shari is a scientist hard at work with his crew in a swampy slush of forest just beyond Jalamut. His work table, a blue ice chest settled among moss-covered tree stumps, is splattered in mud and scattered with knives, syringes, and metal blades. Anshari leans over a chunk of peat soil just pulled from the earth, pushes back his glasses, and carefully slices it into precise pieces. He hands them to his graduate student, who wraps them in plastic and tape, preparing them to be sent for lab work in Europe. This uh, very slow process. <laughs> Pete is special. If you look closely, you might be able to make out little pieces of fallen forest, twigs, leaves, bark, that haven't broken down into the soil over the years. That's because the forest floor is so wet, it's soaking in water. So much water that full decomposition is put on hold. So the plant layers build and build, retaining the carbon dioxide they soaked up when they were alive. Here we're finding the peat is very deep, 17 and a half meters deep. So this peat is very unique. We think it was formed 20,000 years ago. Old, deep peat. Lots of carbon. When the water is drained out of the peat, what's needed to grow oil palm trees, the bits of plant parts decompose, emitting carbon dioxide. 
Indonesia is home to half of the world's peat forests, but most of them are now dried out and degraded. A big part of why Indonesia, just after the United States and China, is considered the world's third largest greenhouse gas emitter. If Fauna and Flora International can keep the oil palm industry out of this undrained forest near Jelamuk, it can sell the carbon as avoided emissions in global offset markets. FFI hired Anshari to find out just how much CO2 is in the soil of its proposed site. For this area, we predict that there are 1,500 to 2,000 tons of carbon per hectare. It's a lot of carbon. And when you add in the carbon from the trees and plants growing here, this forest has about 100 million tons of carbon dioxide, the amount of CO2 5 million Americans will emit in a year. Preventing those emissions could be worth tens of millions of dollars, and that's just in the voluntary market, driven solely by people and companies that want to offset their polluting habits. But if the world's rich, polluting countries were to agree to tight caps on greenhouse gas emissions, demand for carbon offsets could soar. A teenage boy from Jelamuk paddles a canoe downriver from where Gusti Anshari is measuring peat. He sings a traditional song about festivities during rice planting time, when the land is cleared and burned, and people play games trying to blacken each other's faces with the charred remains of the forest. Out here, slash-and-burn agriculture is one of life's essentials. In order to eat, you grow rice. In order to grow rice, you clear the forest. But for Fauna and Flora International to successfully market carbon credits from its RED project, it has to make sure the forest it promises to protect stays protected, and that might mean changing age-old agricultural practices. Putisibao is the nearest city to Jelamuk, and the Kapuas River is the only way to get here. At the port in the heart of the city, rural villagers from up and down the river arrive in boats, ready to sell their forest products for colorful rupiah bills. Patrick Oswald stands out as a tall, lanky, blonde German living in Putisibao. My part in this is focusing on the aspect of remote sensing, GIS, mapping, carbon accounting. Sent by a German development agency, he's been helping Indonesian officials prepare for RED, an effort he calls slow-going. But he says the biggest challenge isn't technical. It's making sure real and reliable benefits flow down the Kapuas River and into forest communities. People here, I mean, why, why they should be environmentalists, why they should say, okay, yeah, we are protecting the forest to develop countries can continue with their way of living. People here, they want to develop themselves. Everybody has televisions, they see how it's going on, how other people live, and they want to share out of it. And if you say, okay, you preserve this area, you're not allowed to do shifting cultivation anymore, okay, you must give an alternative. And this is maybe money from RDD, but if this is not enough, then people definitely would opt for something else. And you can blame them for this. But in Indonesia, forest communities' legal lack of land rights means they'll probably get the smallest share of red revenues. In draft Indonesian legislation, most forests would earn locals 20% of total profits. The rest goes to the government and red project developers, like FFI and its investment partner, the Australian bank Macquarie Group. Oswald says it's up to FFI to make sure its potential share satisfies both villagers and shareholders. 
Of course, in the end, I mean, people must make a living. That's the point. No? In the villages, they must make a living. On the other side, of course, LFI, they're working, they're cooperating with Macquarie, with a bank, and they're, of course, they're investors in this bank. Maybe they see it as an environmental thing, but I think they primarily see it as an investment. And if it's an investment, they also need to see, okay, how to get some profit out of it. And from this point of view, I think FI is kind of in a conflict because FI on the one side, they must ensure environmental protection, they must ensure poverty reduction. And on the other side, they have the investor. I think it's a very tough job to find the middle way. So we start from here, this is the center point. Back in the forest near Jelamuk, an FFI biologist is showing a Macquarie investor and other visitors how he measures carbon in trees and plants. The investment bank wants to begin selling carbon credits from its red pilot project by the end of this year. But FFI wants formal consent from villagers, which its social team expects to take twice as long. Zoe Harkin. One of the trickiest issues is because we're associated with a private investor, they are very keen to see a return on their investment as soon as possible. And so I have to be honest, the, the two timelines cause a lot of tension and um, we need to be very careful to make sure that the, the communities are supportive of the project um, and give intermediate approvals along the way for, for each of these steps. But Harkin says in order to even get a chance at changing the status quo, a red deal needs to happen fast. The government considers the proposed red site production forest, which means it could at any time write it into an oil palm concession. Konstantinas Victor is a local forestry official. I met him in the lobby of the only hotel in Putisibao. 70% of the people in this district depend on the forest, for food, for timber. With red, they could make money from protecting forests instead of working for an oil palm plantation where they earn low wages and destroy their forests. But oil palm is here, and red is still a concept. It hasn't happened yet. FFI is also trying to engage directly with the oil palm industry itself. It's offered to share carbon credit revenues with Indonesia's biggest companies in exchange for protecting peat forests contained in their concessions. But already one of those deals has soured, after FFI says natural forest was cleared to make way for oil palm. The reason why is simple. Oil palm earns more per hectare of land than carbon. Even with mandatory emissions reductions, research shows oil palm outcompeting carbon credits. Despite all the challenges, Zoe Harkin says she's hopeful about Red's potential. Very rarely does an issue internationally get such unanimous support from all the countries in the world. I mean, maybe it's naive, but I feel that it has to succeed with so much support. And um, for me, it's really the last gasp for the world's natural forests. And so if red doesn't work, I hate to say it, I I don't think anything will. Not far from where FFI is measuring carbon, Sabran, a Malay fisherman from a nearby village, tosses a metal net onto the river and watches it fade beneath the water's surface. Logging has harmed this forest here, but I still love it because it gives me fish that supports me today and tomorrow. So if there is a way to protect the forest, I hope to help make that happen. And I hope everyone 
will be involved, and everyone will feel this place is death, and that the sense of belonging will be created. If red is to live up to its promise, it will have to give power to people who have none in places where change comes quickly. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Kapwas Hulu, Indonesia. Coming up, environmental justice and how the residents of a small Louisiana town are taking the United States to an international court. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, the World Media Foundation, which produces Living on Earth, is starting something new. It's called Planet Harmony, and it's designed to reach out to young people, especially young people of color. Few people of color are actively involved in the public discussions about environmental change, even though they have many concerns. It may be a function of history. For example, in the early days, some national parks were whites only. But as Earth Day turns 40, barriers are coming down. When Earth Day is 60, fully half of Americans under 30 will be people of color. Since minorities seldom listen to public radio, we thought we'd reach out through a community-based website called MyPlanetHarmony.com. There'll be video and audio, all supported by the National Science Foundation. Living on Earth and Planet Harmony will be sharing stories like the one you're about to hear now. Five years ago, a group of residents from the rural community of Mossville in Louisiana traveled to Washington, D.C. to file a human rights complaint against their own government. They alleged that the United States was not protecting their right to live in a healthy environment. Now, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has agreed to hear their petition. This is the first environmental human rights complaint from United States citizens to be heard by the Organization of American States. Living on Earth and Planet Harmony's Ike Shreeskanjaraja reports. Mossville, Louisiana is old. The village was founded by freed slaves. They chose to settle land with deer to hunt, fish to catch, and fertile soil to grow rice and sweet potatoes. Today, the descendants of those settlers live in a very different place. Christine Bennett's family has been living here for four generations. <laughs> the place that was once so beautiful and so clean is now a dump. The petrochemical industry built 14 factories where she lives. They make things like siding for houses and each year release 4 million pounds of carcinogens such as benzene and vinyl chloride. What happened to that place where I was reared at that I can go back and show my children, you know? This is where my ancestors are, but now part of it is gone and the rest that's left there is just a little ghost town and people starving for life. We met up with Bennett on her way to file a petition in Washington, D.C. on behalf of her community's human rights. Now, after five years of back and forth with the government, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights will hear the case. Well, this case is important in a number of respects. Stephanie Ferrier teaches international law at Vermont Law School. 
It is the first uh, environmental case coming out of the United States to go to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. So this is the first. Nobody's tried this before. Not from the United States. But other environmental cases have succeeded. In 1985, the Yanomami Indians charged the Brazilian government with violating their human rights. So that was the first environmental case that came to the Inter-American Commission. For 50 years, the commission, made up of members from Canada to Argentina, has provided a last line of defense for human rights in the Americas. The United States has been before the commission on complaints about the death penalty and Indian land claims. But this is the first environmental case from the U.S. to reach the commission. And the commission found the petition actually did make out several potential claims regarding two important rights. One is the right to equality and freedom from racial discrimination, and the other, which they linked to the environment, the right to protection of the law against abusive attacks on one's life, family life. Racial discrimination and health impacts of polluted environments have been notoriously hard to win in American courts. Jerome Ringo, former chairman of the National Wildlife Federation, consulted on another Mossville case. That succeeded in buying up homes of residents closest to a petrochemical factory. Today, the first mile from the plant, from the fence line of a plant to a mile into Mossville, is abandoned. And the property now is owned by the industry, and that is contaminated property. This suit compensated for property damage, but personal health damage? That's another story. Legal standards make it difficult to pinpoint which of the 14 plants, if any, is to blame for the high rates of cancer in the area. The EPA and the CDC does studies that really check the chemicals that are being discharged by a specific plant. But I am not aware of any study that monitors the chemicals that once they meet into the atmosphere and they mix, what do we have then? This toxic chemical mix is a hallmark of Louisiana's infamous Cancer Alley. The emancipated slaves who settled Mossville had land, but no voting rights to protect it. With the boom in the chemical and plastics industries after World War II, companies found little resistance to building factories in these disenfranchised black neighborhoods. Today, government researchers find three times the national average of dioxin levels in Mossville residents. Well, you know, that's the responsibility of government. Uh, We recognize that we have an EPA who is now doing a great job because of the leadership of Lisa Jackson. Jackson is the first African-American administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and she cares about this area. That's right. That's where I grew up. The administrator has made environmental justice a centerpiece of the EPA, but she says the laws of the United States still do not provide adequate protection to its poor and minority populations. And I think the Mossville case um, is a really interesting one because what uh, the petitioners argue, as I understand it, is not uh, in order to get heard, they had to basically make a case that the laws of this country do not provide them an opportunity for redress. And it is true that at this point there are no environmental justice laws. There's nothing on the books that gives us the ability to do it. Since 1994, a U.S. presidential order has mandated equal protection for minority and low-income populations. But implementation is weak. This isn't only a problem in North America, says Santiago Canton. He's the executive secretary of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. We hear that over and over again from people that come to the commission saying that you know they try to exhaust local remedies in their own countries, they try to find justice in their own countries, 
and they couldn't find it, so they, that's why they come to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. In the coming year, the Commission will determine the merits of the Mossville case. This could be a lengthy process, as 1,500 petitions are filed every year. But international lawyer Stephanie Ferrier says just getting the case heard is a victory. The Commission's decision to let the case go forward really goes to the very foundation of human rights law. Conditions of severe environmental pollution are inconsistent with the right to be respected as a human being. And I think that's what this case is about. And depending on the outcome, this case could open a new channel to protect and defend the human right to a clean and safe environment for all American citizens. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Ike Sriskandaraja. Ike is the senior editor of Planet Harmony, and everyone is invited to participate in our new online network. And we especially encourage young people of color to share their stories of environmental concern. Now let's meet Ebony Payne. She's a reporter who will be filing stories and blogging from her hometown, Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ebony. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good. And yourself? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So tell me, why do you think young people of color are getting so involved with the environment these days? Well, I think the direction of the country is going green. Young people of color see the opportunities that we have. We also see the disproportionate amount of suffering that our communities are facing. Like with Hurricane Katrina and even the earthquake in Haiti, uh, we're able to see that these natural disasters have huge implications, particularly for our communities, and that the government isn't always quick to respond with the election of Barack Obama, seeing that we can come together and make big change, I think people of color are just getting really excited to have an impact. There's an increase of interest among young people of color of the environment, but the number seems pretty small. What's your experience been? It is small. I used to say it can be pretty lonely being black and being an environmentalist. But it, it also makes me realize how critical it is to have the voice of communities of color in the discussion. Because if it's not, then the decisions will be made without us, and they are being made without us. So what got you motivated to tell the story of environmental change? Well, I had an upbringing of playing outside a lot, and I was just really sick and tired of seeing my neighborhood trashed. Um, I remember I was walking to school one day and there was this bush and it was just decorated with plastic bags. And I remember thinking that it looked like a Christmas tree with plastic bags as ornaments. But I was just really sick and tired of seeing my neighborhood like it was worth nothing. And so then what draws you to telling the story of, of environmental change? I think being a reporter It's a nice way to be able to relate to a lot of different people and to be able to tell everybody's story to inspire others. And I think just carrying around a sign, it's important, but I feel like writing and telling stories is a much more effective way to get the message out. So as a reporter, what do you find that young people of color care most about when it comes to the environment? I would say uh, toxic substances being... um, leaked into their groundwater and into their communities. I would also say the lack of healthy food. If you go into many black neighborhoods, it takes a long time to find healthy fruits and vegetables. What are you working on now for Planet Harmony in terms of a story? For my next story, I'm focusing on Congressman uh, Clyburn. Um, He is going on a national environmental justice tour 
with the EPA and Lisa Jackson. And I hope to be working on the new TSCA legislation reform um, that has been introduced into Congress recently. The legislation deals with um, over 83,000 chemicals, five of which are being regulated. And the legislation is trying to change it so that the EPA has more power to regulate and to assess chemicals before they go on the market. What do you tell your friends that ask you, hey, how come you're involved in this Enviro thing? I feel like it's the most important issue. Um, I feel like any issue that you care about can somehow be related back to the environment. If you want to talk about agriculture, national defense, health care, public health, makeup, and chemicals being in your makeup, anything that you want to talk about, it can be related back to the environment. Um, So I just love that. Well, Ebony Payne, I want to thank you for taking this time with us today. Thank you for having me. And you can check out Planet Harmony on the web by going to myplanetharmony.com. That's myplanetharmony.com. April marks not only Earth Day, but also a celebration of poetry with National Poetry Month. Here's Ross Gay. This is a poem called Thank You, and I wrote this poem actually in the, in the midst of my father's uh, struggle with liver cancer. And it sort of came to me while I was dealing with that, and while he was dealing with that. It's called Thank You. If you find yourself half-naked and barefoot in the frosty grass, hearing again the earth's great sonorous moan that says you are the heir of the now and gone, that says all you love will turn to dust and will meet you there. Do not raise your fist. Do not raise your small voice against it and do not take cover. Instead, curl your toes into the grass. Watch the cloud ascending from your lips. Walk through the garden's dormant splendor. Say only, thank you. Thank you. As well as writing poetry, Ross Gay teaches creative writing at Indiana University at Bloomington. We found his poem, Thank You, in the anthology Black Nature, Four Centuries of African Nature Poetry, edited by Camille Dungy. The observance of Earth Day has spread worldwide in its 40 years, along with environmental concerns and action. We asked people from all over the planet to send us audio snapshots of their corner of the globe and tell us what they hope to see in another 40 years. Hello, my name is Fabienne Foisseau. I'm from Guadeloupe, French West Indies, in the Caribbean. Living in Guadeloupe could be some sort of a dream for some people. It is definitely a bliss, but we have one major crisis in Guadeloupe, which is due to a product called Kepan, which was used to protect banana plantations from insects 
and it got into the water. So there is a higher rate of cancer, and they correspond to the places where Kapan was used. Hi, my name is Victor Kawonga. I'm based in Malawi's capital city, Lilongwe. I enjoy seeing green stuff. I enjoy the fresh air that comes with the, the trees. And uh, I'm, I'm very concerned that the country, uh, Malawi, is losing tree cover. There are so many people involved in cutting down trees daily, turn them into charcoal. Of course, people in towns uh, buy a lot of charcoal because of the infrequent supply of the electricity. So uh, we don't seem to have a choice. My name is Mariam and I'm from Iran. I live in Tehran, the capital. Many people suffer because of extreme air pollution in this city. There is also the problem of waste. As I work in the field of waste management, I know that the mixed disposal of hazardous waste along with municipal waste is an issue of concern in Tehran. Hi, I'm Alejandro Castillo from Puerto Peñasco, Sonora. That's in Mexico, just next to the Gulf of California. It's an area where the ocean and the desert meet, and several wildlife and plant species have adapted, such as the most endangered marine mammal in the world, the vaquita marina or gulf porpoise. And the biggest problems that this region is facing have to do with unsustainable fisheries and tourism development. In, in 40 years from now, oh, I don't know. It's just a dream, but I really hope that we could have a look back on the early years of 2000, saying we worked hard enough, we got aware enough of the situation, and Thursday wouldn't be necessary anymore. In 40 years, I hope to see the Earth free from any kind of pollution. And I want to see that all people have access to potable water. I hope the problem of global warming will be solved by complete collaboration of all nations. I'd love to be celebrating Earth Day in 2050, eating so much different seafood, fish from the Gulf of California, clams, shrimp, blue crab, golf grouper, and even the currently endangered totoaba. If 40 years from now we are lucky enough to be able to harvest these species locally, it will mean that we have been successful and we've learned how to use our resources right. That would definitely be an ideal and delicious Earth Day. Voices from Mexico, Iran, Malawi, and Guadeloupe on Earth Day 40 years from now. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sreese Kandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. 
Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.